Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name's Becca. I'm on staff here at Central. Um, And occasionally I speak. And so this is one of those days. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at a passage in the Gospel of Luke. Um, So Luke is the same writer who wrote the book of Acts, which a month ago we were looking at. So you can kind of go back, listen to the podcast um, of those looking at Acts 10. Um, But same writer, so same same vibes. Um, And the story we're going to look at is... Maybe we would call it Jesus healing the lepers. Maybe now we would say Jesus healing people that are living with leprosy. Um, And I want to acknowledge that healing stories uh, can be difficult to hear. Um, Sometimes healing in the Bible seems really simple. And um, I know some stories in this room and stories from my own life, and there's many, many, many stories I don't know in this room. And I want to acknowledge that um, there's many of us longing for healing uh, in different ways for ourselves, for people we love. And yeah, I just want to honor that reality and, and hold that, hold a little bit of space for that as we dive into this story. Um, <clears throat> I had a Bible professor named Dr. Gordon Brubaker, an old Mennonite guy with a big bushy beard. And he had, before he came to our college, he was new at our college, and he had spent 10 years teaching at Bethlehem Bible College, which is in Bethlehem, like the Bethlehem. Um, And he would always say, when we would look at a passage of scripture in the Bible, he would start out by saying, if we really want to understand this passage, Ideally, we will have read the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew and read this book that we're looking at now in its original language, and then maybe we'll understand, okay? So I, when, I, when I hear that, that actually doesn't discourage me from reading the Bible and trying to apply it to my life. It actually makes me excited that there are so many layers, there's so much meaning that every passage we read can be like reading it again for the first time. Um, So I found some ancient art to help us better understand this story. It's from my childhood in the 1980s. Anyone else familiar? Flannel board. Did anyone actually have these in church, Sunday school? We had Sunday school, so we had Sunday school from 9.30 to to 10.15, and... All the kids were in different age groups, and then we had church. And sometimes, if you're like, you got to go to kids' church, not very much, though. Um, yes, yeah, so we're going to look at this passage. Luke, could you read um, just verse 11 for me? Yeah, sure. And so it was when he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So... This story is taking place kind of in these borderlands between Samaria and Galilee. Samaritans are considered by the Jews to be ethnically impure. They're considered to be half-breed heretics. They were detested religiously and politically. So they were actually Jewish people who had survived the 
um, conquering of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians in 722 AD. They had survived that um, by marrying Assyrians and adopting some of their religious beliefs and cultures. And, but the Samaritans still believed in God. They still believed in the Messiah who was to come. But the Jews reviled them and considered them foreigners despite their shared ancestry. Um, and Luke has already told us a story, if we had read the whole book of Luke this morning. Luke's already told us a story about a good Samaritan. Um, so he's already kind of preparing us um, to kind of think differently about this people group. Um, verse 12. And as he entered into a certain town, ten leprous men met him there, who stood at a distance. So leprosy is not something that's very common to us anymore. Um, there's a disease that it is maybe modern-day leprosy that's now called Hansen's disease. Um, but this leprosy could have really been any kind of skin disorder that maybe your skin's flaking. It could be psoriasis. Um, it could have been, yeah, all, all manner of things. But um, people living with what was called leprosy were physically separated from their communities at risk of making other people religiously unclean. Um, they lived in these small bands or these small communities together. And this next slide is a picture of, um, this is actually the church. This is St. George's Orthodox Church. And this is the fourth oldest church in the Holy Land. And it's located in the West Bank, not far from um, like a city called Janine, which you may hear in the news at the moment. And um, this is actually called the Church of the Ten Lepers. And when you visit, you walk into a cave and there's a hole in the ceiling. It's believed that the lepers actually lived in a cave together and that people would like drop down food and water to help them survive. Um, it was, leprosy was an awful existence. Um, it was dreaded. It was a very dreaded disease. In the Hebrew worldview, it actually was God's punishment. Um, if you had leprosy or flaky skin, God was punishing you for your sins. And it was perceived as like a living death. Um, rabbis at the time said that healing leprosy was more difficult than raising somebody from the dead. Um, and the fear of leprosy wasn't that you would catch the leprosy, but it was that you would catch the social stigma, that you would be unclean because you're around somebody with leprosy. And you would be ostracized as well. And interesting, in the Hebrew Bible, there's actually no commands to care for people with leprosy like there are for other, you know, widows and orphans and foreigners and the poor and other invisibilized people groups at the time. Um, verse, I think you might have, yeah, verse 13. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Yeah, so I, I'm wondering, were they in the cave and they heard that Jesus was coming by and they lifted up their voice literally out of the cave or did, had they climbed out and were they waiting for Jesus? Um, but they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Um, the word mercy, it means compassion, to be compassionate, experiencing deep lamentation. Um, mercy in Greek is the word elios, and it comes, it comes from the word olive oil. And olive oil at the time was used for soothing, for comforting, for healing, um, to treat 
the wounds of somebody who's suffering. And in Hebrew, mercy comes from the Hebrew word chesed, which means steadfast, faithful, covenantal love. It's about the fidelity of God to the world, the commitment of God. Um, I wonder if the men with leprosy believed that their skin condition was a punishment from God. Did they feel completely abandoned by God in their suffering and in their you know, being ostracized? Um, or did they trust the ancient Hebrew vision that despite their leprosy and despite also living under Roman military occupation, that God was a God of mercy and a God of compassion and a God that somehow cared for them. For them to call out for mercy from Jesus meant that they had reserved at least a bit of self-compassion for themselves. That they knew there was hope, that they deserved mercy. Um, verse 14. And when he saw, he said to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And it happened that as they went, they were cleansed. Um, and if we had spent the first few hours of this of today reading the book of Luke we also would have read the story about another person with leprosy that's healed in Luke chapter 5 um, and in that story Jesus reaches out and touches the man and then Jesus doesn't the man's healed and Jesus doesn't go and complete the purity rituals and make sure that he's clean Jesus really doesn't care about purity codes which we see that over and over again but Jesus tells these men to go to the priest so they could offer a sacrifice and be accepted back into society. And it says, as they went, they were cleansed, or as they went, they were healed. Um, it's hard, I mean, this is a funny picture of these <laughs> men walking together. But you wonder, like, did they, were, did they run? Were they together? Were they separate? Were they, when did they realize, you know, who was the first one to look and see what was happening? Was it at the same time? I think there's a lot of questions with this story. Um, and we don't know the answers to that. But imagine the surprise. Imagine the jubilation. It was like for them being raised from the dead. Um, there's actually a documentary, this is a side note, called A Walk to Beautiful. And I highly recommend it. It's actually about um, women in Ethiopia who, because of childbirth, um, suffer a very devastating um, um, complication called a fistula, which I won't go into details, but it actually means that they, are, they live alone, they're stigmatized the rest of their lives. Except there's this hospital in Addis Ababa that where they can go and make the long journey and have this really simple surgery and have their life changed. And when you watch this documentary, when they go back to their village and their, their families are embracing them and crying and celebrating, and it's so beautiful. And that's the kind of joy and relief that I imagine these men were feeling. The idea that they could go and hug their loved ones again, like imagine how long it had been. Um, and then, Yes, Luke, you can read 15 and 16, yeah, the whole thing. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice praised God and fell down on his face at his feet and gave him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Yeah, so plot twist. The one who came back was a Samaritan. And actually, you can keep going, Luke. And Jesus answered and said, Are there not ten cleansed? 
But where are the nine? There is no one found who returned to give God praise except this stranger. And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has saved you. I totally get why the nine would keep running straight home. Like imagine the desire to be held by your loved ones, to be reunited. Um, or maybe some of them ran straight to the, the priests at the temple to be, have the, you know, the social okay, I, it's, I'm healed, I can, I can go back into society. Um, but why does the Samaritan come back and fall on his face and praise God? Um, Jesus calls the this, this Samaritan a stranger. I think the word in Greek means diff, literally different genes, this different person. Um, he was doubly polluted, not just by his skin condition, but also by his ethnicity. I wonder if, I wonder if living in a cave for who knows how long with nine Jewish men gave him a taste that peaceful coexistence between our people groups could actually happen. That these people groups could live in peace and acceptance with each other and actually that was necessary if they were going to survive under the Roman occupation. The Samaritan recognized that his personal healing was a sign of something so much greater that Jesus was doing in the world. Just a few chapters earlier we have John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he's sitting in prison. He's been um, under the decree of King Herod he's, and he doesn't know what's happening in the world and he's put it all on the line for Jesus and it looks like death is awaiting him um, he sends messengers to ask Jesus are you the one who is to come or are we waiting for someone else and Jesus responds by naming all the people who have been healed including those who have leprosy are cleansed the healing of leprosy was a bigger sign of a, it was a sign of a bigger work of salvation that was happening. Jesus was the one who would overturn unjust social structures. Jesus stands as an antidote to the parade of empires who were oppressing these people. And Jesus was a sign of the mercy of God being ushered into the world. The cleansing of the leper was actually a sign of the messianic age. This is the one we have been waiting for. This is the one who will save our people. And as Luke is constantly reminding us in the gospel and in the book of Acts, the whole world is included in that story. This Samaritan recognized the Prince of Shalom who was prophesied in Isaiah. Shalom is the Hebrew word for it's often just translated as peace in our Bibles, but it's not just about peace. It's about salvation. It's about justice. And a part of that is peace, the reality of peace. An end of abusive empires where the reign of God transforms the world. While healing can come to an individual, and we see that with the nine that were healed and ran back to their families, and that, he, that personal healing is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Shalom actually comes to the whole community. The mercy that the Samaritan received from Jesus, he realized was tied up in the mercy that was waiting for the whole world.
there's a Cherokee theologian, Randy Woodley. Um, not that one, skip that one. Sorry. Um, who has a whole book on Shalom. I think it's called Shalom, the community of creation. Um, but he says Shalom, the concept of Shalom, which is a Hebrew concept of, of salvation, okay? It's communal. It's holistic. It's tangible. There's no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have shalom or no one has shalom. As long as there are hungry people in a community that is well-fed, there can be no shalom. Shalom is not for the many while a few suffer, nor is it for the few while many suffer. It must be available for everyone. In the lectionary, um, this story of these 10 men with leprosy is actually paired with a passage in Jeremiah 29. I'm not going to go into detail, um, but the southern kingdom has been conquered by the Babylonians. Imagine all the horrors of war. Um, and the survivors have been death marched to live in Babylon in captivity, in exile. And the prophet Jeremiah is bringing a word of hope in a time of complete devastation politically and even more so theologically. How could this happen to us? And the word is to plant gardens, build houses, get married, have children, and seek the shalom of the city where you live in exile. Because in their shalom is your shalom in their salvation, justice, and peace. And these are the national enemies that he's talking about. Is your salvation, justice, and peace? Um, not, <laughs> sorry, I'm not going to apologize for crying. But also, I, I would like to stop so I can keep going. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's, that's a very meaningful passage to me. Um, the nine other lepers, they were personally cleansed and healed, which is amazing. It's life-changing. It is what God dreams for everyone. But they missed the bigger story about what God was doing in the world and what their personal healing was wrapped up in. Um, the Samaritan leper, he wasn't just more grateful than the others, which is kind of what I would have learned in, in, in um, Sunday school. But this foreigner recognized the Messiah he recognized Jesus came to reorder the world. Um, and it, all the lepers had called out for mercy, and they had received mercy, but the Samaritan realized that the, the receiving of mercy becomes the giving of mercy, which becomes the receiving of mercy, which becomes the giving of mercy. And that's a sign of God's kingdom come in the world. Um, and Jesus says to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has saved you. Um, Jesus healing us from our personal pain and trauma and rejection and all the ways that we individually suffer. Yes, amen. Like we need that. We want that. Um, but I think Jesus wants to save us from more than that. Jesus uses the word here, sozo, which is about salvation. It is about healing, but it's about salvation. Your faith has saved you. It's different than being healed or cleansed. Um, 
He wants to rescue us together from the cycles of greed and violence that are very powerful forces in our world. The gospel that I was taught growing up under the American empire was about my personal salvation, AKA eternity in heaven. That's what I was offered, my personal status of being pure before God, my personal quiet times, my personal healing, my personal self-improvement, and a promise then of goodness for myself, my marriage, my kids, my country. And this included a lot of personal prayer for my personal salvation, just in case the previous personal prayers for my personal salvation didn't work. <laughs> um, and a lot of that changed for me. I, when I was 19, the first time I left the US, I studied in the Middle East. Um, I actually studied the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I've, I've shared about kind of how much that time changed me. Um, and then I came back and I wanted to change the world. And I was really grappling with how, what my personal faith in Jesus had to do with the actual horrors that I was seeing around the world. Um, and especially my country's involvement in those horrors. And the professor that I mentioned, Dr. Brubaker, I was talking to him one day, it was 2003. Um, I was, you know, wrestling with these questions. I was grieving my loss of certainty of what it means, what faith is and what it does. Um, and I was doing some anti-war protest organization at our college campus um, with this professor. And I don't remember the question that I, asked him, but his answer was, Becca, Jesus did not die on the cross to be your personal Lord and Savior. Jesus died on the cross so that the US would not bomb Iraq. To put that into language for right now, Jesus died on the cross so that Israel would stop the genocide in Gaza, and that there could be a path to a just and lasting peace and security for Palestinians and Israelis. Jesus died so that we as nations and people groups could reject greed, care for country, and avert climate catastrophe. Jesus died so that we could end the crisis of domestic and gender-based violence that kills one woman every week in Australia. Jesus died so that we could have the courage to heal the wounds of colonization and work for justice with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, Islander peoples. And Jesus died so that the Waboys could live lives free of military conscription and violence and the trauma and the cycles of trauma through generations that those create. Jesus was not crucified by the political and religious powers of his day because he wanted to get as many people as he could into heaven. That's really what I believed for a very long time. It's because he was calling for an end to empires and the reordering of the world. And that seems just as impossible now as it probably did 2,000 years ago. Our personal, our salvation is personal to us and we are all in this together. This is not about neglecting our own healing and our own care for ourselves. It means that my healing is so inextricably, inextricably intertwined with the healing of others. It's trusting that in God's economy, nothing is wasted. None of our pain, none of our loss, none of our trauma is wasted. None of our longing is wasted. Our joy and the ways that we create beauty with each other and in the world is not wasted. And as we slowly shift our internal language from me 
to we. We share in the world's longing. We share in the world's delight. In pursuing shalom, in welcoming those who are excluded, in little by little rejecting violence and choosing peace and choosing generosity over greed, we live into the beauty of Creator's Good Road, and I know we are doing that together at Central. And not just us here, but so many other communities all over the world are living into that vision of justice. Caring for those inside and outside of our circles, demanding righteousness from our politicians, and establishing these alternative little ecosystems that say there is more than enough for everyone. This is how we say to the world that Jesus is Lord. And as Randy Woodley writes, um, I have another quote from him. Shalom is not a utopian destination. It is a constant journey. It is a path that we get on and we fall off and we get back on. And in walking that path together, we are saved. I think the Samaritan with leprosy understood this good news. I think that's why he fell on the ground and gave deep thanks to God. So I want to finish um, by reading the Beatitudes of Matthew from the First Nations version. I love the language of walking creator's good road. I feel like it takes the pressure off. Sometimes in the face of empire, we can think, oh, we just need power and money and to build a, like a Christian empire. And that hasn't worked very well for the world. We have tried. Um, I love the language of just walking creator's good road together. Um, however that looks like for us, with our gifts and our weaknesses, with our joy and our trauma, um, that will look different for, for each of us. But I hope that as I'm reading these, that you can find yourself somewhere in this picture of what Creator's Good Road looks like. Creator's blessing rests on the poor, the ones with broken spirits. The good road from above is theirs to walk. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who walk a trail of tears. For he will wipe the tears from their eyes and comfort them. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who walk softly and in a humble manner. The earth, land, and sky will welcome them and always be their home. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who hunger and thirst for wrongs to be made right again. They will eat and drink until they are full. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who are merciful and kind to others. Their kindness will find its way back to them full circle. Creator's blessing rests on the pure of heart. They are the ones who will see the great spirit. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who make peace. It will be said of them. They are the children of the great spirit. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who are hunted down and mistreated for doing what is right, for they are walking the good road from above. And I just want us to take a couple minutes just to sit, maybe two minutes, just to sit and let, let something land for you. 
and notice where you feel it in your body. Maybe you're the one who's weeping. Maybe you're the one who can bring comfort. Um, where do these descriptions of what God's doing in the world, where do they resonate with you personally? Where are you the one in need? And where are you the one that has to give? Where do you see our church participating in parts of this story? I'm just going to finish with a prayer. Um, by Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar. Um, it's a prayer that he wrote in 1999, and it's very needed today. In the midst of all the pushing and shoving among us, in the world and in the church, propelled by anxiety and acted as brutality, you have planted yourself in all your fidelity. You have placed yourself among us in steadfastness and abiding care, present in the day, alert in the night, making us all safe and noticed and cared for. So evidence your fidelity as to curb our anxiety as to restrain our brutality, as to overcome our alienation. By your fidelity, renew us. Renew church, renew city, renew world. Give us the safety to love you fully, to love neighbor well, in glad obedience. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>